0: We are back. I do have to, to chuckle over the pun in that last piece of not having the velvet foggiest idea. It is a reference to the fact that Mel Torme's silky voice was referred to as the Velvet Fog. Mark Evanier is a hell of a writer, and we, we suggest that, uh, you know, if you like reading good writing, you may want to check out his website sometime, News From Me. It is a treasure trove of stories related to show business. I believe Mr. Evanier is the, was the producer of the Garfield cartoon cat program and a lot of other stuff. In this segment, we're going to return to our more usual fare, and what better way to do that than jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. to a first round with the theme of taxation. According to the Week magazine, it was a good week last week for and the American oligarchy after the Federal Bureau of Economic Affairs reported that through the third quarter of 2019, corporate taxes accounted for just 3.5% of all federal tax revenue. If you're keeping track, back in 1960, it was 22%. So I guess most of that 18.5% difference comes from non-corporations who pay tax like you and me. And it was no doubt bad news, further bad news I guess you'd say for you and me, with the report a few weeks back from the Washington Post that about 400 of America's largest corporations paid an average federal tax rate of 11.3% on their profits, which is roughly half the rate established under the 2017 tax law. Of course you should keep in mind the 91 of the Fortune 500 companies paid no federal tax at all. And I know for a fact that a good number of them actually were paid by the government to just be who they are, you know, doing what they do, like creating all those new jobs for robots. And it was a downright ugly week some weeks back for residents of Wasatch County, Utah, who found out that they're going to face years of extraordinarily high taxes. After a clerical error, overvalued a single residence in Wasatch County by almost $1 billion. County officials are theorizing that the horrific mistake occurred when a staffer dropped a phone on a keyboard while logging assessments. The expectation that the owners of a $987 million mansion, which was actually valued about $300,000, would pay. About $6 million more than they were supposed to resulted in an artificially low tax rate for everyone else. Thus, the shortfall will have to be recouped in future years. County manager Mike Davis was quoted as saying, An abnormality of almost $1 billion is a big deal, and, and it should have been caught. Of course, one imagines that residents of Wasatch County, seeing their tax bill plummet, decided not to say anything. But we'd have to agree. It should have been caught. And in round two, we would have to note that it was a good week recently for dogs. Evidently, Americans will spend $75 billion on their pets this year, according to the American Pet Products Association, which is about a 4% increase from last year. Some 59% of dog owners were quoted as saying they will buy their pooch a holiday gift. <coughs> And evidently it was a bad week for investors in Turvo, a Silicon Valley software startup. Some weeks back, it turned out that they have fired the CEO of Turvo after he expensed $76,000 in strip clubs over a three-year span, which represented more than half of the company's $125,000 set aside for entertainment expenditures. Geez, you wonder if that company hired an accountant from Wasatch County. And finally, it was an ugly week last week for poetic symbols, with the news that a Republican lawmaker is asking that a newly cleaned statue of the Roman goddess Ceres not be returned to the dome of Missouri's state capitol. The statue of Ceres, goddess of farming, has stood atop the capitol building since 1924 as a tribute to the state's agricultural economy. Representative Mike Moon says that because statues of Jesus are barred from public buildings, lawmakers should stand firm in our belief by refusing to honor a pagan god. And don't ask me to explain the difference between uh, Ceres and Saturn among Roman gods of agriculture, because that's more than I know. All right, it's time for a public service announcement from Radio Parallax. This, This comes to you via CNN, which noted recently that researchers in Denmark have discovered that When you obediently tap a can a few times, a can of beer or soda, in an effort to stop it from frothing over, you, in fact, have been wasting your time. These researchers showed that tapping on a can of shaken beer makes absolutely no difference to whether it fizzes all over your party outfit or not. Evidently, a team from the University of Southern Denmark randomized a bunch of 11-ounce beer cans into four groups, unshaken, untapped, unshaken, tapped, shaken, untapped, and shaken and tapped. The study found no evidence to support the hypothesized beer-saving effort of tapping. The researchers concluded that the only way to avoid a beer-frothing incident was to wait for the bubbles to settle before opening the can. And by the way, sometime in the past on this program, we puzzled over the notion that, and by the way, long ago on this show, we, we, were, we, were, we were pondering how it is that adding energy to a can by dropping it on the floor, will, for a while, cause the contents to fizz all over the floor. Whereas if you wait a while, that energy you imparted somehow dissipates. I don't think physicists really understand this, but if you're a physicist who thinks he does, drop us a line at info at We want to talk to you. Mr. McMillan is awaiting some researchers in Denmark testing how long it takes after you've disturbed a can for the fizzing to become a non-issue. Now, that's a study worth doing. I was in a 7 a few weeks ago, and I was trying to buy a soft drink, but I dropped it on the floor. A couple of other patrons looked at me and said, you better swap that one out. But being a good citizen and in the Christmas holiday spirit, I just thought that, that's, that, that would be wrong to swap that out with someone and have them get a nasty surprise. And although we're trying to keep our our news related to Donald Trump to a minimum today, we do note that as we speak, Mitch McConnell is backing off somewhat on his previous statement that everything I do during this, I'm coordinating with the White House, referring to the Senate trial, which is upcoming on President Trump after the articles of impeachment have been sent to them by the House. McConnell is now saying that he's not ruling out calling some witnesses in an impeachment trial rather than just having a kangaroo court that votes to acquit. This may have something to do with the fact that the House Judiciary Committee is holding open the possibility of recommending additional articles of impeachment against Donald Trump. In the near future, the committee wants a federal appeals court to order White House counsel Don McCann to testify as it examines potential obstruction of justice by the president during special counsel Robert Mueller's Russia investigation, one of, which was not part of the two articles which were sent to the Senate. So they could add that one as a third. Lawyers for the Democratic-led Judiciary Committee have said if McGahn's testimony produces new evidence supporting the conclusion that President Trump committed impeachable offenses that are not covered by the articles approved by the House, the committee will proceed accordingly, including if necessary, by considering whether to recommend new articles of impeachment. I only want to add to that the comments by Jack Holmes, writing in Esquire.com, who noted that, As a sign of how far gone we are, Americans just shrugged off the fact that the president admitted he was stealing from his own charity. New York state officials announced that President Trump had paid $2 million in a court-ordered judgment for using the Trump Foundation for personal gain. But amid the nonstop noise of the Trump circus, that news barely made a splash. People saw the headline and thought, well, yeah, of course Donald Trump ran a crooked charity, but we really should be appalled. With funds that donors contributed for firefighters, widows, veterans, and other good causes, Trump illegally paid more than $250,000 to settle lawsuits against his for-profit businesses. He bought a $20,000 six-foot portrait of himself and funneled millions of dollars into his own 2016 campaign events. By the way, I've not confirmed this, but uh, somebody sent me a notice that Trump is now being sued by one of the venues that he held a campaign event for because they demanded payment in advance. Because, not surprisingly, Trump apparently has not paid previous venues what he owes them. Well, we'll see where this all goes. I sort of hate to bring this up during Christmas time. In a non related but parallel story, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints has stockpiled $100 billion in tax free funds, which were intended for charity, according to a whistleblower complaint revealed last week. David Nielsen, age 41, a Mormon who until last September worked in the church's investment division, Ensign Peak Advisors, told the IRS that Ensign Peak has not funded any charitable cause for 22 years. The church collects about $7 billion a year from members. The complaint says, apparently, <laughs> $6 billion is said to cover operating costs. Under the IRS's whistleblower laws, Nielsen would share in any recovery the agency made from the church as a result of his complaint. Well, we'll see where that one goes. One piece of good news that I want to forward promote for next week's program while we're talking about And we'll talk about it at greater length. Is that California's consumer privacy law is coming? We're going to try and tell you how it is you can exercise your rights. Privacy advocates are saying this sweeping law passed by California's lawmakers last June will be effective only if consumers know their rights and exercise them. We're going to do our part. The misuse of the data gathered on all of us by big tech has been. uh, Something we've been talking about at great length in this program over the past year. And it's something we'd have to describe as the worst case scenario. It turns out that it isn't just American tech firms that are doing this, but Chinese tech firms, which are allied with the Communist government of the People's Republic of China, have gotten into the act. The American government has opened a national security review of TikTok on worries that it gives Beijing access to data on millions of Americans while it censors content the regime does not like. We'll be talking about that in 2020, but I did want to note a bit of good news related to all of this from The Economist's December 21st issue, an article that talks about how tech can do good in this area. The article was about a man named Wen Zhao, who the art magazine notes never expected to become a celebrity in Toronto, but currently he's often asked for selfies by his adoring fans. He owes his fame to a video blog updated every two or three days in which he talks in Mandarin about current affairs, often very critically of China's ruling Communist Party. His viewers are mainly ethnic Chinese living outside China, but Mr. Wen, age 45, reckons many are in China where he was born and grew up. In recent years, party-controlled media have been trying to extend their influence abroad by buying up Chinese-language newspapers or reaching deals to provide them with news. But vloggers, video bloggers like Mr. Wen, are attracting huge audiences among overseas Chinese with commentary that does not follow the party line. I just want to pause right there and said, God bless him for not following the party line, something that we here at Radio Parallax try to avoid ourselves. Mr. Wen's commentary appears to be penetrating the great firewall of China as the country's system of online censorship is often known. His views cannot be aired in China, where YouTube is blocked, but tech-savvy citizens in China can access the vlogs using a virtual private network. Mr. Wen's videos have attracted about 175 million views since the launch in 2017 of his YouTube channel, or about 300,000 views per recording. He says a fifth of the audience could be in China. His vlog often has more than 100 times the viewership of news items posted on YouTube by China's main state broadcaster. Of course, party sympathizers can use YouTube also. One is Han Mei, a Canadian resident who sings the Chinese government's praises in her vlogs. In a recent recording, Ms. Han argued the Chinese army had responded appropriately to the Tiananmen Square protests when it massacred hundreds if not thousands of people. Her channel is 92,000 subscribers. Anyway, after Xi Jinping abolished the presidential term limits, fueling speculation he would never retire, and, and China entered into a protracted trade war with America, Chinese speakers have been, well, the shock of both events appears to fuel demand among Chinese speakers for independent analysis. What do you think, Mr. Merlin? Should we reach out to this guy and see if we can bring him on Parallax? Does he speak English? I believe he does. I'm a little short on the Mandarin. <laughs> Yeah, well, I am too, so we'll, we'll see. And in another little spot of good news, we have this, with with an appropriate musical intro. You can't touch this. You can't touch this. Well, here's the story. For the second time in about 30 years, a proposal to build more homes near the Vineyard Hills neighborhood in Fremont, which is not very far from M.C. Hammer's old abode has been shut down. A couple weeks back, the Fremont City Council rejected a plan by residents Sarbit Hundal, a local eye doctor, to subdivide his nearly eight-acre parcel into lots with three new homes which could be developed. Among those who attended the meeting to oppose the project was resident Ranjit Advani, who along with other neighbors protested the first multi-house development proposed three Decades ago, he registered his opposition to the latest iteration by displaying one of the T-shirts he and others made back then that read, Can't Touch This, a reference to MC Hammer's hit song. He and other neighbors said new homes on the parcel would block or obstruct their view of the hills and violate a 1985 planning agreement that dictates only one house is allowed on his lot, as well as other custom lots in the area. Councilman Vinnie Bacon said residents there have a right to expect their neighborhood to remain mostly unchanged, and if Hundle was allowed to build more homes, it'd become a slippery slope, setting a precedent that other landowners in the hills might try to seize. Now, since yours truly grew up in the town of Fremont, I'm somewhat amused by this story. I'm really encouraged by the fact that somebody has spoken out and saying, you know, robbing people of a view of the hills is something that needs to be taken into account. (laughs) On the other hand, seeing how little and how late this effort is after witnessing what has become of formerly pastoral area, um, well, all I can say is better late than never. Praveen Bhutia, who lives on a circle beside Hundal's home, said that when he and his family bought the home 28 years ago, they had to pay a premium because the views were captivating, even though the floor plan was similar to about 200 other homes in the subdivisions. We have enjoyed excellent views of early morning sunrises, chirping birds in the backyard, full moon rising behind the Mission Peak hills, snow-capped peak views every few years, etc., etc. I paid extra for that, he said. (laughs) I guess because it comes down to dollars and cents, somebody's paying attention. If I want to turn 180 degrees from the direction I'm sitting at the moment, I can look out and see a partially obstructed view of the beautiful hills of the East Bay, Because many years ago, when developers bought the land behind where I am right now, they assured everyone that they weren't going to build two-story houses. Well, they lied. And they got away with it because insufficient ruckus got raised. So, if any of you out there are facing a similar situation, we advise you to raise a ruckus. can't touch this. As Leon from... (laughs) Curb Your Enthusiasm would say. By the way, that apparently is coming back next month. Uh, the previews look quite outstanding, and Mr. Will and I are both looking forward to some future blue-chip comedy. Weeks back, as part of the obituary for cosmonaut Alexei Leonov, that to our surprise, Leonov, Leonov was wounded in an assassination attempt on Leonid Brezhnev. The fact that someone tried to kill Leonid Brezhnev back in 1969, certainly came as a surprise to us. So we did some research, and here's the story. According to, I hate to admit it, Wikipedia, an assassination attempt was made upon First Secretary of the USSR, Leonid Brezhnev, on the 22nd of January 1969, when a deserter from the Soviet army, Viktor Ilyin, fired shots at a motorcade carrying the Soviet leader through Moscow. Although Brezhnev was unhurt, the shots killed the driver and lightly injured several celebrated cosmonauts of the Soviet space program who were present in the motorcade. Brezhnev's attacker was captured, and a news blackout on the event was maintained by the Soviet government for years thereafter. Reportedly, Viktor Ilyin, born in Leningrad in 1947, was inducted into the Soviet Army in 1968. Evidently, as a graduate from a technical college, he was given the rank of lieutenant, He was said to have been resentful about his forced conscription and distressed by the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia. On the 21st of January, Ilyan reportedly stole two standard-issue Marakov handguns and deserted his army unit. He went to the family home in Leningrad, where he stole his brother-in-law's authentic police uniform. He then left on an unannounced solitary journey to Moscow. Just like a policeman, Ilyin moved unimpeded through a large crowd waiting at the Kremlin. They were clustered at the Borovitsky Gate, where a special motorcade was expected to pass. It would be bearing the successful cosmonauts of Soyuz 4 and Soyuz 5 to an important official ceremony. Two members had returned only a week earlier from their historic manned ship-to-ship docking mission in space, which was the first of its kind. At 2.15 p.m., as the motorcade passed through the gate, Ilyan drew pistols in both hands. Ignoring the waving cosmonauts, he opened fire on the second car in the line, which he later admitted he only assumed carried Brezhnev. But this ZIL limousine was in fact filled only with other cosmonauts from earlier missions, including Alexei Leonov, also Valentina Tereshkova, the first woman in space. Ilyan's shot struck the limousine 14 times and killed the driver. A guard reportedly then ran Ilyan down with his motorcycle, Ilyin underwent a lengthy interrogation led by KGB chief and future Soviet leader Yuri Andropov. He was pronounced insane and sent to Kazan Psychiatric Hospital where he was kept in solitary confinement until 1988. News was scant and slow to emerge. An official Soviet press statement was made two days after the shooting but did not say if the shooter was a man or a woman. Even without official confirmation, the event was seen as an assassination attempt on Brezhnev. Years later, Alexei Leonov recounted how Brezhnev confided to him after the incident. Those bullets were not meant for you, Alexei. They were meant for me, and for that, I apologize. So there you have it. It was one lone nut acting without any help. There was no conspiracy. That should put an end to that. Which leads me to one little bit of, I guess you'd say, very dark humor. And I apologize for it on this holiday show. But I cannot help but note... That five have been sentenced to die for killing Jamal Khashoggi last year at the Turkish consulate. The trial took place in Saudi Arabia. The Saudis sentenced five to death for the murder of Khashoggi and concluded wait for it that the killing was not premeditated. That is according to Shalan al Shalan, a spokesperson from the Attorney General's Office. That finding, of course, is in line with the Saudi government's official explanation, which is that 15 Saudi agents flew to Turkey to meet Khashoggi inside the consulate, including a forensic doctor, intelligence and security officials, and individuals who worked for the crown prince's office. In the crime, which is being officially (laughs) ruled non-premeditated, Khashoggi, was then murdered, his body cut into pieces with a bone saw and smuggled out of the consulate in multiple suitcases. Now, there are people out there, conspiracy theorists, I guess you'd call them, who would speculate that it requires some malice aforethought to smuggle a bone saw into a consulate. But to those who reject any notion of conspiracy theories being valid, well, I guess those folks are going to stick with the idea this whole thing was not premeditated. We would reiterate that the slaying did stun Saudi Arabia's Western allies and immediately raise questions about how the high-level operation could have been carried out without the knowledge of Prince Mohammed, whose agents were reportedly in contact with the crew that went to the Turkish embassy before, during, and after the crime. All this caused Agnes Kalamard, who investigated the killing for the UN, to condemn the trial as a mockery of justice, saying the fact that the chain of command and the state have not been investigated means that the system that made it possible for Jamal Khashoggi to be killed has not been touched. Gee, you think? All right, finally, we have a bit of dark humor related to sports. It's the playoff times. We're nearing the playoffs in the National Football League, and if you're a football fan... You owe an awful lot to a man named Rune Arledge, who I intended to talk about today, but we're going to have to defer that to next week's program. The instant replay, which was Rune Arledge's idea, has certainly changed how we view sports, particularly American football. It, of course, is not so critical in international football, which we know as soccer, because, I suppose, so few things take place on the playing field. But if we would go back to Alameda County, California, we would note that the Oakland Raiders have reportedly played their last game in the Oakland Coliseum, although now they're saying if the stadium's not ready in Vegas, they may play one more year in Oakland. It should be noted that this week, Alameda County sold its share of the Coliseum to the Oakland A's for $85 million. Whether that turns out to be a good deal for Alameda County residents remains to be seen, but it does appear that this sale was motivated by the fact that as the Raiders Run off to Las Vegas, they left behind sixty five million dollars in debt to Oakland and Alameda county, and that's of course, if they paid off the debt uh, last month, the debt service for the stadium is in fact six point four million per year each for the city and county. Now, the biggest expense all out of all of this was the one hundred million dollars which the city and county agreed to spend to add 15,000 new seats and 125 luxury boxes to the Coliseum. That's because that's what owner Al Davis demanded to bring the team back from Los Angeles. By the time this whole deal was said and done, the city and county had taken on about $223 million in debt for the benefit of the Oakland Raiders and some other sports teams as well, like the A's, which are now the owners of the Coliseum. What I like best out of this whole story of how fans are getting screwed again by the Davis family comes in some quotes amassed by the East Bay Times from Mark Davis, John Gruden, and quarterback Derek Carr about playing in the Coliseum. Said Derek Carr, you don't go into any other stadium and see something like our fans. It's not just a football game, and our fans make it that way. To which he did not add, apparently, so long, suckers said John Gruden. I guess in a lot of ways I was raised here. I just love it here. I think some of them are crazy like me. So we have some common ground to which he apparently did not add. Hope you enjoy watching the games on TV from now on. But the best comes from owner Mark Davis, son of Al, who said what I remember was a Thursday night in the rain against Kansas City. We were zero and 10 and the fans came out to support us. We won the game because of them. And it was an example of why Raider fans are the best in the world. To which he apparently did not add, but I'm hoping that the Vegas fans will be even better. Now it turns out as I speak in this microphone, the Raiders have a shot at making the playoffs. To do so, Pittsburgh has to lose, Tennessee has to lose, Indianapolis has to win, and the Raiders have to win their final game. What I hope is that the first three will happen and that Mark Davis sitting up in his luxury booth will be thinking, hey, we got a shot at the playoffs just before they lose their final game. To which I would add... program was produced by Edward McMillan. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Season's greetings, and we'll see you next week.